May 7, 1945, outside the small Czechoslovakian village of Volary, 24-year-old U.S. Army Lieutenant Kurt Klein of the U.S. Infantry Division is on patrol in his Jeep. His strong jawline, sandy blonde hair, and blue eyes are hidden behind a battle helmet and dark sunglasses. Together, they give him an almost Hollywood leading man mystique. World War II is officially over, but Lieutenant Klein and his partner have been informed by some local villagers that the German SS has abandoned some prisoners in an empty bicycle factory, so must go check it out. He pulls up to the factory and exits the Jeep. As he approaches, he sees someone standing against a wall in the factory entranceway. It's a woman, but she's unimaginably skinny, has white hair like a grandmother, and under her tattered prison uniform are somewhat surprisingly weathered ski boots. The woman's name is Gerda Weissman, and although she looks like an elderly woman, she's just one day shy of her 21st birthday, hasn't bathed in over three years, and weighs a total of 68 pounds. Lieutenant Klein asks Gerda if anybody speaks German or English. She responds that she speaks German. And despite the big yellow star in her prison uniform, Gerda then feels obliged to tell him, we are Jewish, you know. Lieutenant Klein hesitates for a moment, unsure how to respond. Then his voice sort of betrays his own emotion and he replies, so am I. You see, Lieutenant Klein isn't just any American soldier. He was actually born in Germany and only fled to the U.S. at the behest of his parents before the onset of the war. But for now, Gerda doesn't need to know all that. His job is just to make sure she's safe and that she gets the help she needs. Lieutenant Klein begins to see Gerda's eyes welling up with emotion. He calmly reassures her by saying, Don't cry, my child. It's all over now. And for Gerda, who has just survived a six-year existence that was so horrifying that it'll be talked about for generations to come, it is over. But at the same time, it's also kind of a beginning. You see, Gerda and Lieutenant Klein don't know it yet, but they are about to go on a journey together. A journey into a love story that just minutes before neither one could have ever imagined. One that begins with absolute and unimaginable horror and ends with a 56-year love affair that will confirm to them, and mankind, that sometimes, love does conquer all. We could ride the light waves Together ignore all the sound waves How do we get, how do we get so brave? How do we get, how do we get so brave? I'm Kevin. I've been happily married and in love with my wife for going on 10 years now, and I love telling real-life stories. So I decided to combine these two worlds and create something new that will celebrate love stories like mine. A podcast which highlights what I think are the most moving, most fascinating, and most memorable love stories of all time. Stories that not only teach us about love, but also about ourselves. In this episode, we'll tell the extraordinary and inspirational love story between Holocaust survivors and human rights advocates, Kurt and Gerda Klein. And remember, if you like this podcast, 
please give it a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. Today's episode is brought to you by amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. And if you're interested in creating your own great love story, schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast for special discounts. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the world's greatest real-life love stories. To anyone who knew Kurt and Gerda Klein back when they lived in the Buffalo, New York area after World War II, they might think the two are your typical middle-class couple. Sure, their life together started in war-torn Europe, but so did the lives of thousands of other husbands and wives at the time. Kurt and Gerda's love story is not only a remarkable one, but it's also one of the most inspirational love stories of our time. It's a story that as I talk about, a part of me thinks it really should have never been allowed to happen. I mean, it took the suffering of millions and millions of people to bring these two souls together. Still, I think the best way to look at Kurt and Gerda's love story is the way the two of them looked at it. They were just two fortunate souls who found each other after one of the worst times in human history, the Holocaust. And because of that, they will spend every day finding joy in the little things in life, while at the same time making sure that the hate and barbarism that changed their lives forever never happens again. Kurt is born on July 2nd, 1920, into a middle-class household outside the small town of Waldorf in southwest Germany. As a youth, he spends much of his time reading, especially classics from the English-speaking world like The Jungle Book, Treasure Island, Tarzan, and pretty much anything about cowboys and Indians and the American frontier life. But by 1937, conditions worsen for Jews in Germany, so his parents make the difficult choice to send 16-year-old Kurt along with his older sister and brother, to the United States to live with family, with the hope to join them there one day. Kurt ends up in New York, where he works as a typesetter, a dishwasher, and a cigar store clerk, all to help pay for his parents' eventual passage from Germany. Unfortunately, this day never comes, as his parents only make it as far as France, where they are caught by the Germans and sent to the Auschwitz death camp in Poland. There, they perish with more than one million other innocent souls. By his late teens, Kurt is fluent in both German and English, making him a valuable 1942 draftee to the U.S. Army's upcoming fight on the European continent. Soon, he would join thousands of other young soldiers in the fight against Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. Back on the other side of the Atlantic, a self-described innocent and naive young 15-year-old named Gerda Weissman has her idyllic childhood turned completely upside down when her hometown of Bielsko, Poland is invaded by German troops on September 3, 1939. It starts when her older brother Arthur is swept up by the German army, never to be seen again. Unable to flee from the inevitable due to her father's pronounced heart problems, 
Gerda and her parents are forced to live in the basement of their home for a year and a half until they are finally caught and placed in a Nazi-run Jewish ghetto. In 1942, Gerda is tragically separated from her father, who is then sent to a death camp where he eventually dies in one of the gas chambers. Later that same year, yet another tragedy strikes Gerda and her family. As they approach a German guard to be sent from the ghetto to their next destination, the soldier sends her mother and sole remaining family member to the right. Gerda is sent to the left. Like her father, she would never see her mother again. As Gerda awaits her fate inside a dilapidated boxcar en route to a destination unknown, she starts up a conversation with a pretty redhead from her neighborhood named Susie Kunz. Gerda, ever the eternal optimist, voices that she fully expects that the war will end within six months and she'll once again be able to reunite with her family and friends. Susie takes a more pessimistic view, wagering the war will go on for years. Gerda bets Susie a quart of strawberries and cream that she's right, payable when the war comes to its quick end. This is a bet Gerda would eventually lose in more ways than one. Gerda then spends time in multiple slave labor camps and is somehow able to cheat death for three long years. Just long enough for the Allied invasion to push its way across Europe so that on January 29, 1945, her German captors, desperate to avoid the Allied advance, decide to flee their camp in western Poland and head towards Czechoslovakia. Unfortunately for Gerda, her and 2,000 other women prisoners are going too. The 350-mile winter march, known as the Volary Death March, lasts over three months, finally coming to an end on May 7th. By the time they reach their destination in Volary, just 120 of the 2,000 will survive. And one of those who didn't make it was one Susie Coons, whom Gerda had made that quart of strawberries and cream bet years earlier. In an almost unreal, cruel twist of fate, Susie actually survives the torturous years in the camps and even the winter death march. It's not until that very day on May 7th, the day they are finally rescued by the Americans, that Susie passes away. She is soon buried along with 92 others from the march in a Volary cemetery. The reasons for Goethe's survival of the march, as well as those three perilous years in the camps, can be attributed to many factors. Luck, sheer will, the unexpected kindness of others, and one other somewhat surprising thing. Ski boots. You see, when the Nazis forced her and her family from her home in Poland back near the start of the war, her father made her wear her ski boots, despite it being June. These boots would become instrumental in saving her life during all those freezing cold days and nights of her captivity. Soon after they arrive in Volary, the Nazi prison camp officers continue their retreat, but leave Gerda and the remaining survivors from the march inside the abandoned bicycle factory. 
but not before attaching a time bomb to the factory building and padlocking the doors so they can kill everyone inside and destroy any evidence of their tyranny. I know this sounds like some ridiculous plot point in a World War II movie, but I assure you this actually happened. But amazingly, there's a torrential downpour that night, and somehow this prevents the bomb from connecting to its timer. It never goes off. It's at this point that the local villagers realize that the women are inside. They cut away the padlock and call the Allied military for support. This is why right now, Lieutenant Kurt Klein is standing in front of Gerda. She would later describe the moment she meets Kurt this way. I was in rags, obviously, and here was this dashing young American, like a prince coming and freeing me from the oppression of slavery. It did not take long for me to fall in love with him. When I first saw him, he was the embodiment of an incredible dream. He was the only person I had left. I had lost my family and all my friends. He was extremely handsome and very kind. Kurt would later describe their initial encounter much differently. His version goes like this. She was completely emaciated. Her hair was matted and grayish. Nevertheless, a spark of humanity had somehow remained that made her stand out among her companions. Those hollow-eyed automatons I had just seen shuffling across the factory courtyard. Knowing that Gerda is not alone in the factory, Kurt asks, May I see the other ladies? Gerda would later say that after years and years of Nazi cruelty, this one little gesture of opening the door for her and letting her precede him in completely restored her faith in humanity. Once inside, as Gerda and Kurt stand over the dying prisoners strewn about the factory floor, with her hand, she makes a sweeping gesture over the scene and then quotes a line from the poem The Divine, written by the German poet Goethe. Noble be man, merciful and good. Kurt recalls this moment as having a great impact on him. Maybe it's the irony of those words uttered before such absolute horror, or her composure in recalling such a line after years of suffering, or maybe it's just the compassion she shows amidst all this tragedy. Whatever it is, the bond between this unlikely pair is forging. Gerda would refer to this time she spends with Kurt in the factory as her quote-unquote greatest hour. The chance encounter that led to this greatest hour would later be documented in the book they co-authored together called The Hours After, Letters of Love and Longing in War's Aftermath. Kurt would later write in the book, from that point on, I was continually impressed by this young woman, by her bearing, her composure under those unspeakable conditions, and later by all she expressed, verbally and in writing. Even after she fell critically ill and hovered between life and death in the makeshift field hospital in that small Czech town. The makeshift field hospital he refers to 
would become Gerda's new home for the ensuing months as she tries to recuperate from extreme frostbite, malnutrition, and everything else that happens to one's body when it's pushed to its very limit. As Gerda recovers, Kurt continues his duties as an intelligence officer, which includes the important job of interrogating Nazi personnel and collaborators. He visits her in the hospital as often as he can, but for the next year, they would spend much of their time apart. About this special time where Kurt would visit Gerda, he would later write, It was during those frequent visits that it became quite obvious to me that I had found a soulmate who shared my background, my likes and dislikes, my love for literature. Finding her most attractive, I became sure that I was falling in love with this remarkable girl and I wanted to share my life with her. In order to stay connected, the two write numerous love letters back and forth and slowly, day by day, get to know one another. In this one, dated May 20th, 1945, Kurt opens up about losing his family. It is only now that the finality of my parents' fate is fully dawning on me, after all the years during which I grasped with the slightest straw of hope. And I'm saying that because I recognize the unselfish way in which you are attempting to spare me the incontrovertible facts. Does that sound pessimistic? After all, you said yourself we have to be honest with each other. Gerda responds a few days later with this. The last few days have been pretty sad. It is the first time I can look back in freedom to the years of horror. Memories wash over me like waves, mounting to heights of total recall and then receding. Unfortunately, I have time now lying on my bunk, not doing anything. Entirely too much time. Still too ill to be allowed to get up. I wish I could walk already. Instead, I think, remember, observe, and try to visualize the future. And that future looks a whole lot brighter with doctors and nurses at her side and one Lieutenant Kurt Klein entering deeper into her heart. This new support system even gives her enough energy to take on a new hobby. She tells Kurt about it in a letter written on July 6, 1945. Not only am I walking now, but I'm able to run. So I take long walks in the fields and think about the future. And I've had the good fortune to learn something that is beautiful as well as practical, and I'm very excited about it. Frau von Gamier is a talented artist. She fashions jewelry and fine metals and is letting me try my hand at it. It is exhilarating to work with my hands, giving my imagination free reign. My first masterpiece is a tiny star meant for you. I will send it to you at the first opportunity that presents itself. Please forgive the primitive form and without a doubt the many mistakes, but I pray it brings you good luck. After over two months of healing, Gerda's war-torn body bounces back, allowing her to be released from the hospital and into Kurt's arms. And this time, Kurt won't let go. In their book, he explains why. What I found irresistible was her quick wit, her unwavering principles, and that fire in her radiant green eyes, coupled with her dimpled smile, 
which was more and more in evidence as time went by. She was possessed of an inner as well as an external beauty that became a powerful magnet for me. And the thought of this special and rare person leaving my life became intolerable. Then on an evening stroll in the woods in Munich, Germany, Kurt asks her the question on which their destiny is hinged. Will you be my wife? Looking back on this moment in time, Gerda has a unique take on what was going through her mind. She writes, It seemed that both of us were like ribbons tossed into the wind, floating through the years, through places unrelated, through incidents significant to each, through this all-consuming, cruel war that had just ended. Was it predestined that we must meet, love each other, and merge our lives? Those questions are both fully answered on June 18, 1946 in Paris, France, when Lieutenant Kurt Klein makes Gerda Weissman his wife. From there, they make their way across the Atlantic and settle in Kenmore, New York, outside Buffalo. Kurt then trades in his army uniform for a suit and tie and begins his own printing business. As for Gerda, she fulfills her lifelong dream of becoming a writer. She publishes five books and spends 17 years as a children's columnist for the Buffalo News. Over time, they will have three children and eight grandchildren. The couple also establishes the Gerda and Kurt Klein Foundation and through their many lectures, interviews, and books, spread their message for tolerance, basic human rights, and the power of the human spirit. Eventually, even Hollywood takes notice of their lives and in 1995, Goethe's incredible life story becomes the basis for the Academy Award-winning short-form documentary, One Survivor Remembers. Goethe even accepts the award herself and is allowed to go on stage and give a short but powerful speech at the Oscar ceremony. If you want a good cry, definitely check it out on YouTube. It's pretty incredible. In a somewhat macabre but really, really profound observation about her time at the Oscars, Goethe would later point out that she was actually once sold as a slave to the German army for what would amount to about $3.50 today. Her speech during the Oscars in 1996 took up two minutes of airtime, which would cost an advertiser about $2 million. The irony of how much the value of her life has changed over the years is not lost or taken for granted by this amazing woman. Kurt and Gerda's marriage would go on to last nearly six decades until Kurt's unfortunate death while on a lecture tour in 2002. He was 81 years old. And as of the making of this podcast, Gerda is alive and well at 96 years old and continues hers and Kurt's legacy of telling the world about their astounding love story. And although it's a story very much about love, it's clearly more than just that. That's because the experiences that Gerda, and to a lesser extent Kurt, had to endure are not only ones that should never be allowed to have happened on this earth, but also never imagined in our worst nightmares. Still, she took all that tragedy and she built a life for herself with the man who brought her her greatest hour. 
I'm going to end Kurt and Gerda's love story by reading something that Gerda would tell audiences in the schools and synagogues during their many talks and lectures. Something that, despite the unbelievable odds, explains how and why a love story like theirs even came to be. She says, I am very lucky. My dreams were fulfilled. All I ever dreamed about was to be free, have a family, have a home, and never be hungry again. And yes, there was horror and suffering for Jews in Nazi Germany. But there also was friendship, love, caring, and even amid utter desperation, hope. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. Or like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. And if you're a smart, successful single who's looking to find your forever relationship and want to create your own great love story, go to amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Amy's programs help you break unhealthy dating beliefs, attitudes, and patterns through live virtual group coaching, private coaching, video lessons, and breakthrough exercises. Schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast and you'll receive special discounts on her various programs. See you next time on the world's greatest real life love stories.